Hello and welcome to the Animation Communication Podcast, your source for discussion about animation, film, fandom, and more. So please join your host, I Love Kim Possible a Lot, or KP, and Lauren Kizich, the Abbey Roadie, for today's discussion. If you like what you hear, please remember to support by giving a like, a follow, as well as subscribing to the main I Love Kim Possible a Lot channel on YouTube. Spread the word and keep being a part of a great community. This episode is appropriate for all ages. Hi everyone, welcome to this spooky episode of Animation Communication, except the topic isn't really too spooky unless you are one of those people who don't bathe at cons. Um, please take baths. <laughs> 621, 621. 621. Um, we'll get into what that is for people who are just like, what does that mean? Is that like their secret nerd <laughs> code or something? It's like 911, but for nerd emergencies. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, this e- this episode specifically is about online conventions, and um, I'll introduce that subject and um, our guest X beforehand, and then uh, we'll get into, we have a couple of headlines, I guess. You know, as, as COVID is generally happening, like, the entertainment industry is slowing down, so people are having to be creative with the things that they're doing, so we're just like, well, someone made a tweet today. Um, Puppet but shows it's like are that. back. Guess what? Disney Plus. Oh, I do have a head headline for that. Um, I remember. Anyway, okay. So, um, so our first, so our topic is online conventions, which is something that um, a lot of you know niche communities do are doing. I don't think there's any like. I mean, Lightbox wasn't niche, so. Just I guess yeah, a lot I mean, of unless you want to consider the anime unless you want to consider the animation uh, industry niche I mean in a way it is <laughs> yeah so I guess these are more convention I mean um, correct me if I'm wrong Dex and then I'll introduce you but like um, these are more conventions that already have either like a like a base to cater to or already established conventions that have been going and we're just like I guess we'll just s- switch to being online because people want this to happen but. COVID, so, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd say there's three categories there for talking about later. There's your huge ones like Comic-Con, your medium-sized ones, you know, 20,000 people or less, and then your ones that uh, spawned entirely for online. hmm <sighs> So, I guess if you're um, wanting to contribute to some nerd communities and you don't know where to start or, um, you know... I think, I mean, there there have been online conventions before COVID, um, but now there's just more dependence on them, I guess, um, especially for artists because they have virtual vendor halls or specific, like, sales on their SD or commissions and stuff like that if they're vending at conventions, from what I understand. But anyway, why don't you introduce yourself, Dex, and talk about what you're doing now with online cons and, like, what your con experience has been in general for, like, not online cons. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, <clears throat> hi, I'm Dexanth or Eliana. I have been staffing conventions since 2013, starting with TrotCon and almost entirely in the My Little Pony space. I uh, was the vice chair of BronyCon for its final two years, and once the pandemic started, I founded PonyFest Online. 
as well as this past weekend, in fact, literally today, helping out with IdleCon 2020, which is another one that started as an online-only convention. Okay, and, and what is Idol? Is that just a general anime con, or what's it's it about? It's specifically for, like, idol culture. So you could think of it as, like, if you had a con for, say, Dragon Ball Z and Bleach and all of the fighting anime, you could think of idols as another category of anime and you know, weed culture. <laughs> yeah, we we really need to do an anime 101 episode one of these days because, like, I saw... Well, Lauren, as if you've heard last show, is really into um, Lupin the Third, and I've, like, I've watched Death Note, and I like Miyazaki. Look at me, I'm an animator. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that's my Miyazaki extent. would be so mad... Miyazaki would be so mad that you referred to him as anime. <laughs> I know, I know. Anime but was it's a mistake, like... is, is his most famous non-quote. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, so um, let's go to the animation news. Um, spooky, scary skeletons themed, except not really. So um, I guess I'll do like the Disney Plus news that I've heard, and then Lauren, you can do the other thing that happened, I guess. Okay. So the Disney Plus news, I've heard this from an official source by official source, like targeted like updates in my timeline on Twitter, you know. But I like for those who don't know, I'm really interested in like <laughs> the business model of Disney Plus um because I think Disney is the strongest or one of the strongest, you know, entertainment companies in general. I mean, I don't think that's you know, um I don't think that's like a like a bad statement. I think that's just a generally true statement. So, especially now that like the mass culture has access to like all the canon and all the sequels just like whatever they want like how is that affecting their um consumer uh, practices and stuff like that so i'm a nerd so anyway um so disney plus has just added this feature i don't know how it works yet i haven't tried it yet but if you and your friends all have disney plus accounts you can all now watch things at the same time you can like connect your your disney plus accounts and like you know stream ish so like the amazon watch yeah amazon feature. watch yeah. or rabbit yeah. before that broke right rabbit broke so um i think that's kind of broke slash was annihilated <laughs> it just like stopped uploading like rabbit was another streaming service that just like totally um they just discontinued it i think because the company went bankrupt or something um but anyway i guess it's a motivator to i mean I think it's really smart because this probably, I mean, this is something people were doing anyway, I bet. So to have an official like way to do it probably encourages people who don't have Disney Plus to buy it because they're just like, well, I want to watch this with my friend, but I don't have, I don't want to pay $10, but oh, friendship, friendship pressure for your $10. So, <laughs> you know, and then um, specifically the profile pictures, so how Disney Plus works, just like Netflix, is you can choose your own profile pictures, and for Disney Plus, it's all Disney characters, um, they have, like, most of the, like, most of, can most canon characters, like, even, like, like, characters like Robin Hood, and, you know, they're kind of adding more as they go, and they had Kim Possible at launch, I think I mentioned this, and I was like, yeah. So they only she's the only character though um from the show, but they have like the majority of the Phineas and Ferb cast and just like I want I want more game possible characters just for my ego, like you know. So anyway. Uh, you mean your Shigo? 
Um, <laughs> I feel like there's a She-Ra pun to link into there, but it's not coming. Yeah, I'm sure. Like we have the power or something. Well, She-Ra is a, a an icon for Netflix, so but She-Ra isn't owned by Disney yet. <laughs> anyway, um, so your your avatars will carry over. So I don't know how it works if like you you and your friend are both baby Yodas because you can't choose the same avatar like within family units units. Um, to avoid confusion, so I don't know. But in theory, this is a neat idea, and if you want to spend time with friends and you like Disney movies, um, watch some Treasure Planet, um, bother Disney Plus to add those icons. I'm hoping they'll do something for the anniversary of Treasure Planet, because that's in November, and I'm, like, paying attention to things. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, as we get more nostalgic properties, like driving the brand, um, anyway, there's my media analysis. Lauren, what's going on with the movie theaters? Uh, yeah. So we were, we, you know, we, we joke saying, you know, there really isn't anything spooky to this, but I can say that there is something going to the grave and that's Regal Cinemas. Um, they are shuttering all of their US and UK theaters. It is the second largest, uh, theater chain in the US right behind AMC. So... And, and they're actually going to be closing up, as of recording this, they're going to be closing up all of their theaters as soon as Monday. And as of recording it, that would be tomorrow. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's like, it, and it was mostly, at least as according to the various sources that have been reporting this, uh, it is according to uh, all these sources that uh, because of the, the delay on the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, um that uh which i guess all these theaters were banking on it to be released soon so that it would generate revenue and get people back in theaters that 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 is not happening so uh yeah uh so i this looks like it could be very well the end of regal cinemas as we know it uh and that has left it up to debate as to what is happening for because that's one of the few theater chains that has had theaters reopened up in the middle of covid not every theater but a number of good a good number of them uh but it does make people wonder uh especially varying county to county and state to state uh what that means for theatrical releases for animated movies coming up uh be it in a couple weeks or even in a month uh, and that means like we're looking at pixar's soul and we're looking at the Croods too, and then we're also looking at, and I'm gonna say it, Lupin the Third is getting its it's getting its U.S. release finally at last, two weeks from this point, and yet and yet Regal is shuttering before they have that release, and so, <laughs> you know, so people are wondering, oh, is it just gonna be down to like Cinemark and maybe AMC? I don't know, maybe a couple Pacific theaters left. I don't know. <laughs> Oh my god, I just imagine like, you know, we have we all have grandchildren and they're just like, You remember Blockbuster video, grandma? You remember movie theaters? <laughs> remember when people actually went to a movie theater? Like they had to go to a physical place to see a movie? And now I can just like watch them with this thing in my brain that, you know, what like you know, you can watch them whenever you want. I'm like, yeah, we had that. It was called imagination. <laughs> but anyway, um We'll see. I mean, it's also like the only other thing I realistically see all the theaters, like, is turning into, like, haunted houses or, like, doing some, like, shitty Phantom of the Opera, like, 
thing where they're just like, oh, it's haunted. It's the ghost of the economy. So, um, <laughs> you know, I'm just I just don't know, like, what they're realistically going to do with all those buildings, because that's those a lot of buildings. And that's like, you know, you know, we still got to hold out like coronavirus is well, to go ahead. To be fair, a number of movie theaters have turned into gyms. But then again, <laughs> that that's not doing too hot right now, is it? No, um, I guess we'll just see what happens. I think I think they should turn movie theaters into like very small conventions because like you could just have panel rooms and you can like like convention halls, mini convention halls. Yeah, you know, like space to rent out, like for Boy Scouts and you know, like church events. But like you could go to like depending on what kind of sermon you wanted. That's my only idea. And I feel I I feel God in this movie theater tonight. <laughs> Jesus bless this screen. May you keep it free of technical difficulties. No, I just imagine like someone going in the back and doing like the D- Jesus pose and it's reflected on like as a shadow on the screen and just like there you go. <laughs> Jesus is with us. <laughs> Um, anyway, that's, that's our bad, um, jokes, so thanks for coming, um, please subscribe. Okay, let's get actually actual, like, content of the, the thingy. Um, so, do you have any, like, general questions, Lauren, about, like, conventions, like, as someone who isn't as seasoned in conventions to, like, bring up? Or do you want me to just, like, go into, like, my pre-plan of, of things? I think it's, it's better if you lead in, because then I usually get questions as, as I go along so okay that's fair I was just I was wondering if like I don't know how many people are listening to this who were like what's a convention like you know I don't know like what range we're dealing with yeah because I'm like I I, I, I'm not about to be the voice going what's a what's a convention what's what is this people have fun a big group (laughs) of nerds who come together to celebrate something particularly nerdy (laughs) <laughs> yeah essentially so um you know for like we did a a convention like 101 like um episode like i think episode six or seven something early um where we kind of explained like the marketing of conventions but to break it down in simpler terms you have this big building that someone with money invests in and they fly in sometimes they fly in like guests from like voiceover or you know depend like people specific to a general community and then people pay admission and then there's panels which you know like demonstrate something or premiere something sometimes um like i usually when i do panels i premiere like a new video before it goes on youtube or they like teach skills like there's a lot of writing and like drawing panels and that kind of thing i really want to do an animation panel like when all this is over eventually like a panel i actually get get to teach something in and so just like hey thanks for coming see this thing first before no one else does have a cookie but and then you have the vendor hall um where you know either mm-hmm. let me let me backtrack so dex um this is something i don't know because usually for pony conventions it's individual artists who are like selling posters and like knickknacks and 3d printed stuff so what would you say would be like a a like the range of like products people ba- or people make for conventions because like Prince is obviously one and then for maybe non pony cons or um, conventions with more of a corporate backing um, how does that work as far as like are there like reps coming in like vending 
t-shirts for Marvel. Like, that's something I have no idea about. So maybe if you know anything. Sure. <clears throat> so, I mean, yeah, in the, I would say it breaks down based on whether or not the convention topic is something that effectively is the product of a major corporation. For example, since I came up in the My Little Pony space, that is a major corporate product. But Hasbro's target demographic that they actually make products for is small children. So as a result, for the adult fans, there, you know, wasn't often a lot of things to buy. Ergo, you would have fans making things ranging from posters and prints to coffee mugs to little charms and knickknacks, you know, like um, buttons and badges, all the way up to, I mean, I'm literally sitting under three or four, you know, full-sized My Little Pony blankets. <laughs> so the uh, you came prepared. <laughs> creativity there has expanded over eight years as or 10 years as vendors really it was the people who kept going were like well my walls are covered in posters i don't need more posters well i already have 30 pony coffee mugs and uh <laughs> that's been a big reason why the vendors keep on identifying or inventing new stuff but that also only works because hasbro doesn't shut them down since it's kind of a symbiotic relationship. With anime conventions, it's very different. Um, in that anime's market often is already marketing to adult fans and adult collectors, which means that as a fan artist, you are competing with the official products, you know, for customer attention. So where in a, you know, traditional con, you might, that's, you know, doesn't have to worry about that you may only have a vendor hall in anime cons and bigger furry cons it's often split up into exhibitors and artist alley where exhibitor could be seen as your official vendors you know um, as well as just people who are big enough to justify buying an entire booth whereas your artist alleys are buying a table and mm -hmm. it's usually an individual who can fit everything they're selling into two suitcases. Yeah. Yeah. It's really tricky because um, I think Lauren has vended once, right? You you vended at yeah. PLA. And you yes, helped. back in 2017. Yeah. And you helped Christy, I guess, as needed for stuff, mm -hmm. like when there was conventions. And I've vended um, like the last two years. I usually didn't vend. I was usually like, I'll do panels and I'll hang out. But the thing I found out as more co conventions I did is just like in between panels, there's really nothing to do. So I like keeping busy, you know, and I like I get a lot of, um, you know, as artists in general, like it's kind of hard to expect what to market for. Like for something so niche as ponies, like you can draw some, you know, popular ponies that people, you know, usually have merch in like, you know, popular, popular characters. But when you're going into an anime convention or something with a huge saturation of product, then you're just kind of shooting in the dark. Like I'm going to draw this big fancy, you know, um, picture of some person that I like from this anime and just kind of hope that someone who likes that anime and likes your specific art style will want to buy it. Like the majority of my yeah, like my vending can... at conventions is, is is commissions. It's like barely any KP stuff because the other time people are like, "What's a KP? What's an I love Kim Possible lot? You should change that." I'm like, I know, 
I know Samantha. It's part of the thing. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, but yeah, it's it's when I started doing non pony cons, that was a big distinction between the artist alley and the exhibitors. And I guess too, um, we should also mention that like the general like products that Hasbro was making, especially in the early days of the ponyness, um, they weren't the best like quality, and that's why people were dependent on fan fan you know creators as well as like you know the plushy scene like correct me if i'm wrong but that's what i remember like i remember like there was a pink celestia and everyone's just like re why is she pink like celestia is a horse that's supposed to be white but she's pink and people were like why is she pink that's not show accurate and so like people would buy it sometimes but ironically so then we got a pink one and it worked out kind of but you know over the course of the fandom we got gardens of guardians of harmony line which was kind of more catered to like everyone and not just children who will break things yeah like i have a celestia from years ago that was custom painted to make it more show accurate Mm -hmm. you know back in the days when you could not get that because yeah hasbro didn't make it (laughs) yeah back in my day so like if you watch like john's brony documentary um so john delancey did a brony documentary it's called I think it's it's Bron- it's called Bronies. Bronies, the unexpected tale of adult fans of My Little yeah, Pony, something like that. that. So I think it's on Netflix. So um, um, you can watch it if you want to. I guess it's okay. It's kind of interesting um, to see, but that shows a lot of the early culture of like people having to make very custom themed, you know, characters and very spe- specific. Um, you know, molds of different characters comparatively to, like, what was on the market. So, and then now, like, you know, plushies in general, like, was something we didn't have. And, like, people were like, I'll give you $500 if you make this character I like. And then it became a thing. They still go for $500. I know, I know. <laughs> like, it's 10 years in and Hasbro still never made high-quality plushies. So that market still exists. <laughs> It's like as basically, yeah. It's like, um, like I even have a little uh, beanie plushy version of my OC, um, from somebody that I got for like, and actually very reasonable too. For, especially if you're supporting independent plushy makers, which you should please do. Um, it's worth every penny. Uh, is that uh, Cassie's plush? Uh, made me a beanie of my little beanie baby kind of plushy of my OC, and it's like. It's like if she were in the show, it'd be considered show accurate. Like it's just down to the finest detail. You couldn't get that with something that is mass produced. Yeah. So, um, and I would sell like I for pony conventions, I would get um a build of my pony, um, my character, and you know, I'd do a silent auction on it. And it did pretty well, especially at BronyCon. Like, I think we made three. We made three and um you know, and then we have little baby KPs that people would buy, and it'd be great. And I wish I made more, but decisions. Um, so, Dex, how did you start? Oh, my God. Chewie, get out of here. Chewie's my dog. Chewie, <laughs> out. Chewie, give me a second. This is the advantage to having cats. One of my cats is literally sitting two, or not even two feet away <laughs> uh, on top of the cushion next to me. But she's just nice Sorry, and Chewie quiet. can open the door with his nose, so I can't really do anything about keeping him out when he when he sneaks in. Um, He's too smart for his own good. I mean, he's smart, but in all the wrong ways. Like, he wants attention consistently, and... (laughs) Oh, God. He's annoying. Um, Anyway, 
But um, so, Dex, how did you start um, volunteering for conventions and how would someone do that if they so choose, like maybe after COVID's over? So in my case, it was actually an accident. Um, I came up through a small community known as the Round Stable. And back in 2013, we were had recently launched our front page, which was meant to be, you know, a My Little Pony news source. I went to TrotCon in 2013, the editor-in-chief was there, and he was like, hey, want to make an article about TrotCon? And um, I did that, and I started just doing more articles for them, because being press was fun, honestly. You got to go places and talk to people you didn't necessarily get to do as a fan. And then in 2014, I got sucked into charity work, more or less last moment. You know, the charity auction needed some help. I ended up doing that. And that's how I started staffing BronyCon. And it was all downhill from there. You know, in <laughs> 2017, 2018, I was staffing 10 to 12 conventions a year. <laughs> I kind Why? of burned out on that because I was addicted. <laughs> it's an addiction. Oh. And... Yeah, yeah, I finally hit my point where I want this is a little too much and I burned out on exhaustion. <laughs> but yeah, considering how much prep goes into each convention, even the small ones take so much time and effort to make and to like, you know, plan ahead and organize. It's just like that's that's a crazy schedule. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, that's why you'll find a lot of regular convention staffers tend to have one or two cons that they might serve in a high level role you know something like the head of a department or a chair and then a bunch of other conventions where they work as ordinary staffers and the reason for that is because when you are an experienced con hand you know the other conventions know cool i can hire you and kind of the deal is i'm not gonna join any of the you know a lot of the pre-work because i know what i'm doing i'm here to show up and help you guys out and mm -hmm. It kind of works because you all know each other already and, you know, know that they can be trusted to execute on that without a need for training. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but if you want to get into it, the reality is cons are almost always starving for volunteers. It is easily the biggest thing that we can always use more of because uh, mm -hmm. people grow up, they get jobs, and then they start becoming busy. A lot of the skills you can learn at staffing conventions you start realizing can be used uh, or can be turned into careers. And the really good people, that's what happens. They find something in cons they love doing. They find a way to start getting paid for it. And then they realize that they don't have that much time to volunteer for conventions anymore. <laughs> it's the circle of life. <laughs> it really is. Um, yeah, I mean... I'm like I'm one of the people that are always kind of pushing like to do like volunteer work that people want to do. So like part of like our production team is like, you know, so you need to work on your artist portfolio anyway. And I'm sure it works similar for conventions, but like you want to work on your artist portfolio anyway, like do this background art or do this announcement art for this guest that we just booked. And then we can put it on your website and then you can be like this image was used for you know, it adds credibility to the thing that you need to do anyway. So, like, I think it's all about, like, 
you know, being firm with what you think you can handle, you know, ideally. Um, I know a lot of people bite off more than they can chew, but like, and kind of trying to figure out like what you're good at and stuff. But a lot of times um, I find that in order to get your foot in the door somewhere, anywhere, that you have to kind of work for free or kind of schmooze a little bit in order to feel like, or have the higher ups feel like you can be trusted to do like heavier stuff and, you know, things that require more responsibilities than just showing up. Um, yeah, yeah, like in, in con scenes, you're pretty much never going to have somebody who comes in and is just handed a department like without any experience, mm-hmm. you know. The only time that happens is when a group of friends goes, let's start a con and does not have experienced people involved. And most of the time that ends badly. Conventions are very expensive. And so like you, if you ask any con chair what their number one piece of advice they give about starting a con is, it will be one word. Don't. Mm hmm. <laughs> or at least know what you're we doing, will continue, right? <laughs> but if you insist on ignoring that, like we all did, <laughs> here's what you need to know. <laughs> oh god. Um yeah, and especially too, like we talked about a little bit this we talked about this last time a little bit. Um, you know, that you have to like find investors and there's like a process of like booking the space and stuff like that. And I feel like people are just blinded mm-hmm. by like, oh, I want to get these people that I like and you know, kind of not so much the power, but the control that they can have if they don't like a specific aspect about like another public convention. And then, you know, from my understanding, it just blows up badly because, you know, people are, you know, flaky when they don't have any experience or credibility. Yeah. Yeah. So. And if you don't know how to budget, like the way I would put it is <clears throat> if you're looking to start a con and you don't have between $10,000 and $30,000, you are willing to lose then you do not have the budget to start a physical convention. Mm-hmm. Like that is going to be your upfront cost that you can basically guarantee you will never recoup because it's the seed capital and conventions almost never run sufficiently in the black that you will be able to cash that money out. Mm-hmm. Mm. In rare cases that'll happen, but you should pretty much assume that your upfront investment is a massive charity donation. Right. Um, is that a tax write-off? You probably. Well, it would depend, I think, on the convention organization. <laughs> if it were a 501c3, that would be a taxable or deductible. Probably, it would depend on your local jurisdiction. But like you know, if it good. were a private business, I don't know what the rules are. Good. Good legal question. I was just curious. Um, you know, and especially especially because I did think I was thinking about how, um, particularly at least out of my experience with. Um, with uh, Brony conventions was all of the the charity work and all of the charity fundraisers and all that kind of stuff and the charity auctions. Yeah, d- does that all come into play uh, again? Like as a, like a tax write off because it is technically you are through that doing, you know, you are doing something philanthropic. I guess you could say. Yeah. It's- so like charity auctions, that's pretty much always tax deductible. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that. So you know, you have to. It's totally off topic, but you would have to donate enough money that combined with your other tax deductions, it's greater than the standard deduction, which is something like $13,000. So mathematically, you're probably looking at $8,000 to $10,000 in charity donations in a single year. 
before you're at a point that it would make sense to itemize that as opposed to just taking the standard. Mm-hmm. And that's a good way to put it is like, if you're at that level, talk to a tax professional because they'll be able to tell you uh, what your best path is. <laughs> Welcome to the art podcast. Let's talk about taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But I mean, it will come up with a, you know, any physical con. Like, that's one advantage the online ones have is it's a whole lot easier to do it without ever legally incorporating because you don't really have to sign contracts in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially if you're just kind of like, let's have a gathering and we'll all live stream at the same time, there can be a lot of flexibility with format um, from what I can imagine or what I've kind of seen uh, throughout the internet so far. Um, yeah, like an online convention, literally your startup cost can be nothing. And then from there, it's your initial cost are things like Zoom licenses, you mm-hmm. know, that allow you to put on a more professional looking presentation. But um, the costs for an online convention are going to be dramatically lower across I the board. I feel that. Yeah, I was actually one. I was wondering that because um, after attending Lightbox online this year for the, and this was only the convention's second year running, and their second year they had to go entirely online. Um, uh, they, they did primary uh, most of their panels, I guess you could say, uh, were Zoom calls, and that yeah, I was curious about that because yeah, with um, I guess with Zoom licenses, how long have you been working with? Uh, with in terms of online conventions how long have you been working with licenses like that for especially because i know it, it it helps ensure like larger amounts of, of people in one call to be able to attend it yeah i mean zoom specifically we actually use that internally at BronyCon all the way back in 2017 2018 or so so uh and then i my professional job as soon as you know COVID hit we all started using it there as well so for uh, online, it was kind of an obvious solution in my case to utilize Zoom since it's, its biggest advantage is that it's just really convenient for a lot of people. Almost everybody has it installed at this point. So you can usually give your special guest just say, hey, join the Zoom call at this time. And um, depending upon how sophisticated your event is, you know. Uh, depends upon how seamless the experience is from there. A lot of the work on an online convention at this point is behind the scenes, and it's focused on making the experience seamless for like the average user. It's, it's easy to do things that are user-unfriendly, but it's hard to do it, and it's extremely hard to put on an online convention in a way that is friendly for like the attendees. Mm-hmm. Um, can you so can you walk us through the steps of like starting or your process of starting? Um, you started Pony. What's the name? Ponyfest. Ponyfest right? online. Yes. Okay. If you go to ponyfest.horse, you can uh, oh see our website. <laughs> That's I mean, great. .horse is the best domain for any pony convention. I think it'll be terribly popular in the future. You're not wrong. Like people won't forget it. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to remember. Not even, not even horse. kidding. That is, that is the URL because I just tried it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean. It, I love it. We have. I think it can even like go back from version 4 to version 3 to version 2 to version 1 of the website. 
Uh, I haven't tried to see if that option still exists. Let's see, there's looking for the 3.0 website, looking for the 2. Yep. <laughs> so you can just keep on clicking links at the very bottom to go back to the older versions of the website. Oh, that's great. Oh, anyway, so like, um, so using your experience doing real life cons, like what, you know, what are your steps? Like, what do you do first as far as like buying the license for the website, like doing Zoom? Step one is going to be recruitment. Like an online convention is a, at a bare minimum, a 20 to 30 person job. So mm. unless you have the ability to recruit a core staff, which in the case of Ponyfest, I started off finding, um, you could think of it as audiovisual because you need a way to broadcast design mm -hmm. because any online event lives or dies based on its branding, mm -hmm. uh, public relations and social media because it doesn't matter how good your branding is without someone who knows how to get it out there. Um, our Discord head, since Discord is just extremely convenient for serving as an online venue, and then mm -hmm. um, your website, you know, like it, it kind of expands uh, your events head. You can just see me go, or I really should just pull open PonyFest so I can look at the department list and go from there. But <laughs> yeah, like at, at your core, the question is, what's your event going to be? For example, for PonyFest 1, we targeted, you know, a single stream. And as a result, you know, we only needed to curate for that. We didn't open content applications the first time around because we were able to fill it all, you know, through our collective contacts. And mm -hmm. um, that kind of, I think, was a really good strategic move at the start because it meant that our first stream was sort of a best of the best and instantly set us apart. But yes, you recruitment. And then from there, and even more so, experienced recruitment wherever possible, because that's just going to save you time and effort. Mm -hmm. If you don't know four to six people who either are willing to spend a lot of time learning together or already have the skill set, then your first thing to do is go make friends. Friendship is magic, I guess. And will keep you from going insane uh, by having to literally run everything yourself. <laughs> Friendship is mental health. <laughs> mm hmm Oh, yeah. I mean, it truly is a, then, team it's a team effort. Yeah, I just, like, I'm just going over the mental list of, like, who who's burned me by saying they can do more than they actually can and then I have to go in and fix it and it's great. So Yeah, like you could think of it as compared to a physical convention, you know, um, your Discord server, if you're running it through there, sort of clash or combines your venue, your security, all of the stuff that depends upon physical space, like simultaneously is the most expensive and is gone. And also kind of the most upfront work that, uh, by what I mean is, you need to finish a lot of the physical stuff before you can successfully announce to look legitimate. 
whereas online, I mean, we literally announced two days after I had the idea to do the thing. But we were also able to do it in a single week because we didn't have to make any contracts, you know, we didn't have to negotiate with anyone. We were able to work on everything in parallel. Whereas in a physical event, you're going to start kind of getting, well, I can't do this until this other thing finishes. And that's why physical events usually have about a year before uh, they do another one. Because you never know when you'll get log jammed for literally a month or longer. Yeah, I just imagine those those actor contract negotiations can be like tricky sometimes. The, the most challenging thing is getting people to respond, <laughs> you know. Actors and agents I, are busy. I, believe, I, I do things on the internet. I know that feel. Or just pe- people like agreeing to do something and then you have to kind of babysit and be like not, in, like not in a way that's like insulting, but like, hey, like that thing you're supposed to do, like, do you have time to talk about it? I see you tweeting. I know you're online. Like, so. <laughs> yeah, like the, the reality is for conventions are kind of advertising mm-hmm. for the talent. So as a result, it's not usually the way they make a lot of money. It's nice supplemental income, but they and their agents both are going to be focused on getting more acting gigs. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that that can make it a challenge to, you know, stay in steady communication as a result. That's 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 fair. Because you're kind of competing with them, you know, or you're kind of competing with their main job in a weird way. I Yeah, that, that makes sense. Have people gotten a lot of acting gigs through their convention appearances? Like, do you know that in general? It's, um, I would say where the convention's benefit is about, you know, raising your profile mm-hmm. in a way. And kind of, if I were talent, that's a good way to put it. The reason I would attend conventions is one, it would let me get to interact with other talent. So it would be a way to seek out new projects kind of through the, um, you know, little black book as opposed to the checkbook in a way. Mm -hmm. And you never know when those can then turn into big paydays. It lets you connect with your fans, which honestly, I would say for a lot of the talent is the biggest draw because that can be really affirming to see how the work you do is meaningful to people. Um, yeah, you know, and hey, some it's a fun excuse to travel somewhere they might not otherwise have the money to travel to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's valid. It's I would say it's not the primary way by any means that talent would seek to get new roles of any kind, but if they know how to play the game right, it can definitely thanks. help. Thanks, Andrea. <laughs> and it would help the most if you're right. just starting out. I mean, it makes sense that a lot of, like, you know, like, Pony VAs who have been, like, in a couple episodes or one or two episodes, but their character is very popular and they go to convention, like, they could kind of, you know, make it a nice side hustle, too, and being out there. And I think, I mean, I know a lot of, like, I know Peter and I know a lot of people, or in Andrea, like I just mentioned, or, like, um, go to cons a lot just to kind of connect and kind of, you know, meet everyone. It's, I think it's kind of neat, so... Yeah, exactly. Like, it's it's a way, you know, if you're a professional to tap into a segment of your fan base and kind of your whole career that only really exists in that space. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I guess the first, so you, you make contacts and then you launch the website and then um, 
do you, I guess you use Zoom? Like, how do you encode stuff from Zoom to the website and like scheduling and how does that all work? Sure, it's going to be different based upon what each event runs. If you look in the space, it's pretty common that most people are broadcasting to one of either Twitch, YouTube, or Discord. Mm -hmm. um, and using that as kind of using their infrastructure, honestly, to relay it to everybody else. Then from there, it's a question of, you know, and then to interact with all of those, well, Discord, you literally can just screen share and you're done. Mm -hmm. So like if you're in a Zoom call, it's very simple in Discord. You hit screen, you select the right window, poof, you're broadcasting it. For Twitch, you're using a software suite like OBS or um, Streamlabs. And you can also do that for other ones like, you know, YouTube, but uh, Twitch is going to be the go-to if you want to be broadcasting an actual stream that anyone can tune into. <clears throat> and then like for Ponyfest, for example, we kind of have a complicated setup. <laughs> and this is because getting technical for a moment in Twitch's case you can think of it like at an ordinary convention, you have panel rooms. Right. So a panel ends, the panelist leaves, the next one comes in. If it's a really popular panel, like as in your main events hall that's just full to capacity every event, staff will clear the room so that, you know, other people can see the next one. But like at smaller panels, you don't need to clear the room because there's always empty space. Mm -hmm. So... uh the, the key here is it's easy to switch out panelists. Like, literally, one walks off, the next one walks in. Right. Online, that's not the case because, for example, on Twitch, it's person A stops broadcasting, person B starts broadcasting, and as an attendee, that means you have to be paying attention to refresh the window. Mm -hmm. You know, and YouTube's the same way. You might have to keep jumping to different channels. Like, it's not the same seamless user experience. So for Ponyfest, we actually have everybody send it to an RMT or RTMP server. Hi staff, if I got the acronym wrong, I apologize. I'm not natively an AV person. <laughs> and then from there, we, you know, do some overlays on it. Like that's where our branding is applied. Um, we have an ad module so that we can advertise our vendors. We have the ability to, you know, play music and kind of all of that is handled through our control panel. And then the control panel mm -hmm. is what outputs to Twitch. And the advantage to that is it allows us to have people send us the info. We can then switch it over on the back end mm -hmm. and we never have to shut down our Twitch stream as a result. So for a user, it turns into a television station. They turn it on and they can leave it on. And I do think that that is really good and also took an entire month of development time to pull off. <laughs> so it's kind of a unique advantage we have. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like you, just explaining it, like it makes a lot of sense because I know like um, I know like before COVID, a lot of conventions would be messy because, you know, people would be hosting on YouTube streams and they'd be hosting on Discord and you kind of had to like figure out where everyone was going to be and what they were streaming on and like you know if that was something you needed to install and like a whole thing so like like the like that just seems like a smart way to do it and that way you don't have to worry about like please refresh the yeah. page or like this stream is starting like you need to click on this button so you know 
Yeah, we've helped out one or two other events like that, you know, we've allowed them to kind of use our setup. Mm -hmm. And I think it was known as Powered by Pony Fest at the time. <laughs> and so definitely uh, Powered by Pony Fest at the time. And so definitely... Uh, <laughs> I obviously believe in it since my event uses it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like creating what's going to set you apart there. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of taking it down the road is that's about creating a fun and seamless experience for your get like your attendees. Right. Because if they have to do a lot of work to come to your event, they're just going to go, eh, this is too much effort and go do something else making your barrier to joining as small as possible is honestly extreme it's very basic when you hear it outlined and yet a ton of online events don't seem to understand this i think it just like the process has just been simplified as far as like streaming in general or like that people just take it for granted that they have to be at different places but for someone like maybe someone who's not used to using a computer for instance or doesn't know like you know the 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 I guess the most up-to-date streaming services, like if you don't know what Twitch is and you're just like, what the fuck is a Twitch? It's like, you know, is that like a drug that the kids are on to, something like that? Then, you know, having, you know, like the easiest way to be like, it's like a TV grandpa. And they're like, oh, okay, I can watch the pony show on my new TV. It's just called Twitch. So, you know. Yeah, and you could think of it too, like think of your guests. You know, a lot of them aren't AV savvy. So, like, you can't reasonably expect everybody to know how to set up OBS and then do an output to your server. Um, especially for your voice actors and, you know, your other creatives who work in the field professionally. Like, mm -hmm. first off, they're going to have Zoom already. And second off, the more work you ask them to do, the more likely they'll tell you to piss off. <laughs> so when the work is join the Zoom call. Click the button. It's a lot easier to keep them happy. Yeah, I imagine, um, you know, I imagine like all the pony guests in general are relatively easy to work with at this point if they've been doing like conventions like before this. But, you know, I imagine there's some like curmudgeons who are not used to this or like they're dependent on, you know, convention puds. And be I would say online, yeah. it's going to be a lot about who, for lack of a better way to put it, who in your event already has a direct relationship with talent. Yeah, you're right. And because like a lot of the way we've found guests through PonyFest is our staffers are friends with them. Mm -hmm. And so they're literally able to, you know, just poke them casually and be like, hey, I mean the show director of My Little Pony. That's how we went about it. I just was like, hey, we. I want to ask you some stuff. Can uh, I DM you? And we went from there for the first time around. Was this was this Jim? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, I like had, I've worked with him before at other events, so he knew who I was. So it made it a lot easier to get him on board because a lot of the people that he'd be interacting with, he's known for years. Mm -hmm. You know, he knows we already have an established positive relationship. Right. But a startup event doesn't have that. So you don't have that same existing credibility to kind of trade in on. Right. Yeah. It just makes everyone feel better if, like, you know, it's like someone that you know has done this before so you're not kind of gambling your time 
or your energy, you know, um, you know, cause like just kind of hearing through being around, you know, putting conventions, learning that there's like three agents, three main agents or three, or, I think three or four that like, like this person does this talent and this person does this talent. And you can kind of hear through the grapevine, like who is realistic to bring, like before even approaching them, um, you know, correct. Yeah, off the top of my head right now, I'd say there's four major pony agents, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, yeah, each of them represents like a different group of talent, mm-hmm. um, you know, depending upon honestly how they're professionally representing them. Right. And some agents like working with conventions more than others. Right. So that will also influence which talent you see more often. Because an agent who's responsive and is into the con scene is going to get a lot more, you know, people poking them than one who it's really hard to keep in contact with. And is going to get a lot more, you know, people poking them than one who it's really hard to keep in contact with. Right. And I imagine, like, especially for the pony guest stars that are not are not primarily doing pony conventions or just conventions in general, it's just kind of like... Sometimes it can be kind of a mess to like explain what a brony is and like come to our pony con and they're like fifty million dollars and you're like never mind. So yeah, like awesome as it would be to ask like John Delancey or Tara Strong or Felicia Day to attend a pony fest, the reality is they're big enough names that it's going to cost almost certainly four figures at yeah. a minimum to you know recruit them even for an online event. Maybe not that much because you'd only be like, hey, can we rent your time for right. an hour? But it, it, yeah, like if you're not throwing down some serious dosh, you're wasting their time and you're wasting your time right. as well. Yeah, it's something, you know, um, I've seen to learn. Um, let me think. Um, can you describe um, like how an online vendor hall would work like from Pony Fest's experience, I guess? Like. Yeah, I, I would say that at this point it's consolidated. I've seen two approaches to vendor halls. Um, one was to host it on a website that pretty much just had direct links to the vendors themselves. And the other and much more popular way is you create an online vendor hall in your Discord. So it effectively serves as each artist has, you know, a booth or a channel that serves as their booth and they're able to set it up, you know, as they like, which usually consists of them effectively, you know, creating a list of their products and how to present them and then being around and available for people to talk to, ask questions, take commissions, all of that. Mm -hmm. The most important thing for that is to not have too many artists for the number of attendees you have. Right. Because, yeah, it's really easy with how easy it is to accept people to oversaturate your vendor hall. And that's going to lead to a lot of disgruntled artists. Um, We have a very high rejection rate at PonyFest, not because we want to, but because we know that we simply, if we accepted everybody who applied, none of them, you know, maybe one or two would have a good weekend, but that would be it. And... Exactly. You don't want to, yeah, you don't want to ask them to spend, you know, an hour or two setting up in your space um, and then to like sit there at their computer all weekend looking for PMs that never come. So as a rule, you know, you'd want to have some idea of your engagement numbers, but I would say like 
off the top of my head, one vendor for every hundred active attendees you have. And when I say active, I mean like people who are interacting for more than five minutes over the course of your event, uh, like an hour or so. If you can't engage a hundred people for an hour plus, then don't have that vendor slot, which means at Ponyfest we can fit between 20 and 30 people somewhat comfortably, but even then it's kind of a shot in the dark. If anything, it is supposed to be doing, it's supposed to be beneficial you know, we don't, it's not, you don't want to be a detriment to an artist's business. And to have like an oversaturation of the market, it would be doing them a disservice. So that makes sense. I don't know. This is interesting. Um, I think, I don't think I have any more questions. Um, Lauren, do you have any questions about like how the process works? No, I, I guess more or less just about how things would be going forward because. If anything, a lot, I mean, a lot of changes happened in 2020 and a lot of uh, adaptation and, and evolving has happened in 2020 as a result of, of COVID-19 um, and how that's affected, you know, conventions either postponing or being canceled or anything like that or moving completely online, which that has proven to be the more the, the most successful route, obviously, for so many, which is, and that's great. So uh, I guess maybe it's more or less your thoughts on how do you think things are going to be going forward do you think maybe like when uh physical conventions pick back up again when it's safe to do so you think maybe running uh, a simultaneous online convention to that physical convention might work for some conventions that you know maybe they're the bigger ones and it's like if there's or there's something that's held in a certain area and people can't go, but they want to be able to participate somehow, and so they have online content, I guess you could say. What do you think? So I would say it both depends upon, one, the type of event you are. Um, and to quick explain that, like, you have the really big ones, Anime Expo, San Diego Comic Con, the ones that can draw in 20,000, 100,000 people to their events. Bluntly, they pretty much all have completely failed to move successfully into the online space. <laughs> like, most of them did online events and had significant talent present at that, but if you kind of look at even the public viewing numbers and the social media reaction, you realize that it was pretty much a complete flop in all cases. So, uh, the, the big cons, like, in really most events, do not understand the online space. The number one mistake people are making if they have a physical event that they try and move online is that they try and replicate the physical event online, like straight up, without doing the question, without sitting there and asking, how does being online change our core experience? And how should we change how we present our content to, you know, work with that? Um, the smaller cons, the ones that have less than 10,000 people attending, by and large have also failed to do this, but some have understood that principle more successfully than others. It's the online-only ones also mostly have failed to recognize this, um, but yeah, it you need to be, for the online space right now, you need to be thinking of your event as primarily online and asking yourself, what can I do differently now that I'm digital 
to create a better experience and a more compelling experience for your attendees. Going forward, what I think that's going to translate into in a post-COVID landscape is that some of the online conventions are almost certainly going to stick around because there are a few inherent advantages mm -hmm. to being online, which is number one, it's extremely easy to attend. Um, in fact, in Ponyfest case, you know, we have a large Spanish contingent, a large European contingent, like we draw people from all over the world. And... You know, for a physical convention, people have to travel to that location. Oh, yeah. And that also means that I think where online conventions are going to succeed is because they work really well for people who, you know, suffer from social anxiety. Mm -hmm. Since it's a lot less anxious to, like, tune into a stream or, you know, join and lurk in a server, you can kind of wait around until you feel comfortable with engaging with people. Right. And so on. But bluntly, online cons aren't really going to take off with existing technology because it's not there yet. Right. When online cons are going to dominate is when VR becomes cheap and easy to work with. Mm -hmm. And at that point, prediction is while they will not replace physical cons by any means they're going to become a whole lot more compelling to attend. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that when that day comes, we'll start seeing some online events ultimately killing smaller and less well-run physical events because, you know, they're able to outcompete them. But the biggest ones, like to take Anime Expo, they have 100,000 people who attend that. Mm -hmm. That gives them a budget in the millions of dollars, which allows them to, you know, stage events that are simply impossible to put on at any other event. So that uh, gives them an inherent advantage that really nobody else can match right now and pretty much assures that they're going to remain existing. You know, San Diego Comic-Con's the same way. But... Take Otacon. Um, not to bully them by any means. I love you guys. I'm just picking you as the first med like medium big anime con to come to mind that I could conceive that some of them are ultimately going to lose out to the VR experience in 10 to 30 years. I feel like, like I just imagine... Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 you go, you go. I was just going to be like, I just imagine Dex, and she's just like in her like, you know, like evil lair, and she's just like, how are we going to like, you know, outdo all the conventions soon? I will like take over the convention market, mohaha, but like a nicer way because she's nice. That That is my prediction that I could be completely wildly off on, but nah, I just want the biggest idol convention. <laughs> I feel like what a good step forward was, at least based off of what I experienced, was um, a positive step forward in terms of, I guess, VR in a way, or uh, augmented reality, was um, uh, Lightbox's uh, Artist Alley. Because they did have like a, ven a virtual vendor hall where you would walk, or I guess you could say hop between... Um, you would go down up and down all these aisles of artists and there what would be their little booths in a hall in a virtual hall somebody made in in like vr um and so i think that that was really cool i hadn't seen that really implemented too much before it, it, 
and yet it made total sense so but and, and so that at the same time it still kind of replicated that feeling of being in a hall and going from table to table looking at diff- people's different you know uh, banners and stuff like that and then instead the of having a table with merchandise in front the interactive back the, the backdrops they would normally have for their tables became interactive with little hot links embedded in different icons or pictures or anything like that on the backdrop which i thought that was pretty cool um yeah like thinking riffing on that really quickly like if you had the tech behind it you could even make it that that booth changes for each individual approaching it like since if you think of them as screens it could be set to display something differently depending upon who is seeing it because it's digital Mm. you know like you could have 10 people standing at the booth and they might be seeing different things on the screens in the same quote-unquote spot um, based upon how they're interacting with it. That's cool. That that would be really cool. But that's what I mean where, like, the technology really isn't there yet to support that. hmm Like, I know of a con that ran in Minecraft, and they built an entire convention center in Minecraft, which was super cool. And then they found out that, like, the server didn't do so well under load once they got past, you know, 50-ish people. I don't remember the exact number. But, like, it turned out there were major technical limitations that they really couldn't foresee that kind of capped the number of people who could interact in that space. Oh, man. Oh, that's just sad. And that's where, yeah, the tech needs to both grow and also become more affordable. Because right now it's like, what, $800 or something to buy the VR gear, and then you need a system capable of running it? Mm Mm-hmm. Play Nick and Nick, no, play Rick and Morty in VR. Like that's the only thing I know <laughs> that it, like I might buy. But you know, it's yeah. Like until you can spend, say, the cost of like a PlayStation or an Xbox and get a working VR setup, that's gonna be when it begins taking off. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, so where, if people wanted to attend, um, you know, online conventions in general, um, where would be a good place to kind of look and kind of keep their eye out for stuff? Like, is there a general, like, congregate of, like, you know, like, lists of, like, furry cons, pony cons, anime cons, or is it just more like checking, like, your favorite con social media and be like, hey, we're online this year, we're here, click here. Yeah, I would say it's going to be dependent upon the event themselves. There's no mm-hmm. there's no smoke-filled room that all of the convention heads across all of the fandoms exist in. I know, for example, in the pony space, you know, there's a couple spaces that the convention chairs can kind of talk to each other, but, like, um, and there may well be equivalents to that with anime conventions and furry, since I'm not as tuned into those spaces. Mm-hmm. But most of it's going to be, yeah, through individual social media and kind of through, you know, your your friends. So the best way really would be if you have friends who like attending cons, go talk to them because they'll know, you know, which uh, mm-hmm. which ones are kind of doing that. Yeah, I was just curious if like someone because I know there's like several websites that like just group all the the conventions by like you know, type and, like, who's going to be there and, like, what kind of events they're going to have. Um, so I was wondering if there's anything like that yet for just, like, online-only cons or, like, a collaboration. But I guess, you know, not yet. 
not that I'm aware of, but it could be that, I mean, I know there is one for Pony, I should say, that someone kind of maintains individually because they find it fun. Mm -hmm. But I also don't think many people know about, like, the countdown clock or whatever it is. Right, yeah. I also think about how many are generated a year in terms of conventions, big and small, that it would kind of be hard to keep track of all of them in one place. That too. There have already been, like, in ponies in really all of the spaces if you go back to march april there was a massive surge in online events starting that lasted through may june and then began rapidly declining as people simultaneously realized it was a lot of work and the market got oversaturated very quickly and now that winnowing is continuing but the long-term winners have not fully emerged yet Mm-hmm. Well, just m- I suspect that we at Ponyfest are, you know, doing just fine, and there's a couple others I think are doing just fine, but where it's going to go from now depends upon, you know, where the events choose to go. And, like, the best thing is probably going to be smaller targeted events. So, like, rather than doing a full convention, what I believe online events should be doing is turning themselves into more of an ongoing venue that every two to eight weeks is doing a single engagement thing. So like having one weekend be a gaming tournament and another one being a concert and another one being, you know, your like some presentations and panels and only doing one or two main events per year that try and fit everything in. And the reason is Discord servers can pile up rapidly or really any venue like that. So unless you have a reason to keep people engaged on an ongoing basis online, um, they're going to lose interest and move on. What you need to do is build a space that they and their friends come to to hang out together. And the more work you put into really being becoming like that third space for people to hang out and socialize and meet new friends is going to determine who are the most successful versus not in my opinion yeah like that i don't know i just find all this interesting because i think i like underestimated like because i was thinking just like similar like let's just do a a shoot shit of a con and we'll post it all on discord what could possibly go wrong but like you know talking about branding and like you know, website design, I'm just like, huh, that's actually a good way to do it. It's like these people know what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, easy example, Ponyfest exists because tons of my friends are vendors. So COVID hit, I instantly began hearing, you know, them talking about bills because, like, their livelihood just went poof. Oh, yeah. Um, And that's why I started Ponyfest was a way to try and recreate the full con experience because another artist had already created the digital vendor hall and I looked at that and went this is cool what it's missing is a reason for people to come in and engage with it apart from the vendor hall and that's where Ponyfest came from was let me build an event around this to draw people in so they see what's for sale here but where the branding really came in and I was not expecting this at the start was our mascots like merchandise for them is really popular and at Ponyfest where 
not out to make money ourselves, so our goal is if you want to make merchandise with our mascots, run it by us for approval. And, you know, once we approve it, you're good to sell it. And bitrate stuff mm-hmm. has been a huge money maker for a bunch of artists, like, compared to their pre-existing goods, because it was something new and related to the event. So, like... It gives people something to buy that links them to the positive memories of that event. People spend money on experiences, and when you want to buy like physical goods, the most compelling physical good is something that reminds them of an experience, so that every time they see it or pick it up or interact with them, their mind you know, runs back to that feeling and that sort of glow of what it felt like you know, at that date and time. And that's why they keep spending money. (laughs) Yeah, and that's kind of like tying back to, you know, I'm like, for me and my vending, you know, I'm very particular, like, people are very particular about what they want to buy in general, especially with like a big market. Like, you know, I'm probably not going to do it this year. I've been toying with it. But, you know, LA Comic Con, you know, there's like, you know, I think a thousand vendors there and no one's going to buy stuff for me. But, you know, especially if they don't recognize the branding or they're just like, what is this? You know, like, and it's good advertisement. Like, um, you know, if people are taking business cards, I give kids like little treats or something like that. Or, you know, like people enjoy that. But like the biggest thing is like the commissions and like, you know, specifically parents getting commissions for their kids, like of a character that they like or them as a character or whatever. Because it, again, it relates to that experience where something like, you know, just you know, something that's already available online widely, you know, might not have a similar kind of um, interaction, I guess, with the buyer, so. Yeah, it's a combination of that, and then the other thing, honestly, the two factors that are, or I guess three. If I were a vendor, if I were like, let me put myself as, if I wanted to teach myself to draw to where I could start selling things, you know, and this is kind of related to the con space because it, it how you make money in that as in a as a vendor. Step one and most important is going to be becoming a skilled artist. Like never stop practicing, never stop seeking out new critiques and ways to improve both your technique and how fast you can do it. To give a shout out to one artist, like if I'm a Lou worked in commissions. She could charge a ridiculous amount of money per commission, but because of how fast she works, her, like, hourly wage would be insane. Um, Whereas I know other artists who produce the same quality she does, but takes ten times as long to do it. So that's going to be step one, is that formula of how good is your work and how fast can you put it out. Step two is your personal brand. How are you interacting with people, you know? And that's honestly going to be how interesting and likable can you make yourself to an audience. Um, that's going to vary person to person. It's going to depend upon, you know, your own unique skills and how comfortable you are with all of that. And then step three is economics, by which I mean learning how to price your work, which really is a very simple thing in my mind at least for commission art if you're getting fewer commissions than you want start running sales and discounts if you have as many commissions as you want awesome and if you have more commissions than you want raise your prices very few artists follow those principles if you actually look at it (laughs) 
Yeah, and especially, be- I imagine, like, you know, a lot of artists have egos, too, and they're just like, my art is worth a million dollars, and even if it's just, even if it's beautiful, like, you know, it just depends on, like, the consumer, and, like, are they going to actually spend that money, you know, depending on, you know, how likable the artist is, and how will they engage with them, or, you know, lots of factors. Yeah, how well known they are, how many other artists are making similar products, like being first to market for something is always big. You know, if you look in any fandom space, you'll often see within a couple days of a new character coming out. The first people to make products of that character can often sell them for huge markups, but that's only for like the first couple things. You know, for those people who really vibed with it and instantly are like, I want this and I want to be to have it ASAP. And it's super, I mean, I guess it's just doing your research and kind of understanding the space that you're working in. Like going back to earlier, if you want to work in anime goods, you're going to be competing with extremely high quality official merchandise and that's going to make it a lot harder to sell things because the official merch is going to be priced sometimes cheaper than you can afford to sell it at. So, and if you look at it from a customer's perspective, why would I as a customer want to spend $20 to buy bootleg art from somebody if I can spend 15 bucks to buy the official thing that's just as good like and yeah which is why shipping prints are great commissions are great anything that's unique is kind of the niche for the fan artist there where the official goods are good you should be working probably in one-of-a-kind stuff um, that can't be replicated you know, you need to find that niche. Man, this is just making me miss cons more. Yeah, it's like, I wish I'd put in the effort to, to draw and stuff, because I do enjoy the marketing and the business of it, but I have nothing to market and sell. Mm-hmm. And, like, it doesn't work nearly as well when you're selling somebody else's stuff for them, because... Right. Um, I remember one year at BronyCon, someone had a shirt that everyone loved that's like, I, I'm not the artist, but I can ring you up. Yeah, yeah, that, that. It was my favorite thing. Exactly. Like, I've, I've worked at friends' booths before, you know, to let them go to the bathroom or go to lunch. And it's like, they'll come, attendees will come up and be like, oh, hey, I really love your art. And you just sit there for a moment and go, <laughs> do I want to impersonate them for kicks or do I want to be honest? Right. I remember, um, like, sometimes when I have team people staff, um, like, um, booths in general, and I'm, like, going to the bathroom or, like, I have to do a panel or something like that. I remember one time, um, I don't remember, I don't remember, Lauren, if you saw this, but we had to get, like, buttons for, like, some of the team members that said not KP because people would just assume they were KP, like, Victoria and especially some of the female team members. And so it was, it was funny. Um, uh, I think my last note, if Lauren doesn't have any questions, um, and I'm good too, do you have any, like, funny stories you want to share that, like, maybe you haven't told that you feel comfortable telling that might be a fun way to end? <laughs> Tell me all the John Delancey stories. 
Sure. I mean, let's see. One of my favorite things is from, well, <laughs> I don't have any online ones. The only John story that leaps to mind is just one time, you know, at a con where he plopped down where I was like in a backstage area and was just like, so what do you do? And we ended up talking about, you know, shooting the shit for a few minutes until his agent uh, mm -hmm. came in and had some business related thing to tug him into uh, but i mean part of that the, the story i will tell at pony fest that still amuses me to no end is that our second event we had a va or not a va a writer's panel that was kind of a game show thing we were doing pony family feud that was it and uh mm -hmm. there was a question like name ponies who live in Ponyville or who are from Ponyville something like that and mm. Larson was up and he couldn't get the final answer like he can you give some background on who Mitch is for people who don't pony real quick sure sure so M.A. Larson Mitch Larson was one of the writers for My Little Pony from seasons one through five who is just an extremely gregarious dude like he's hilarious he loves going to conventions he's infamous for signing anything to the point where you know conventions have gotten in trouble before because he has signed a physical property of the venue that the venue is not happy having signed oh, <laughs> I mean, he did sign. A, I, I mean, I did say. I think I might have mentioned it in a in a previous podcast. He did sign a, a celery stick when I was at BronyCon at the very last BronyCon, and a group of us were sitting at a table at this like pub nearby, and he happened to be there at another table. He walked over, and we're, and we're like, "Can we? Can you just like sign this?" And it's like here's a napkin, and then he's like, "Here, I'll sign this too." And he just grabs one of the celery sticks off of our like buffalo wing plate and just signs it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've witnessed him sign a bus. I know he signed a baby. I've seen him <laughs> sign people. I've seen him sign a pack of instant noodles, I want to say. <laughs> I got one. I got one. Okay, he signed my face before and he signed my mom before. So there you go. And you oh, didn't yeah. get it tatted? <laughs> um, My mom just kind of, she's like, okay, I'll go along because this is something that, that, that my daughter is in on that I don't understand but Mitch thought it was funny so <laughs> and and so he was playing Family Feud and the idea here is he probably among the writers he was easily one of the ones who knew the most about the world of My Little Pony like some of the writers they only do one or two episodes other writers fall in love with the world and he was one of the ones who loved the world and so knew it in and out which meant that when he failed this family feud question, he was just like, what the hell? And Amy Keating Rogers just chimes in and drops like an F-bomb or some other curse word, which back in the day when our content rating was PG was immediately led to fan art of like our mascot saying Pony Fest is a fun and family friendly convention. And then Amy Keating Rogers is like Pony OC in the immediate next panel sitting there going shit with a giant smile on her face. <laughs> and I love that that moment was immortalized in fan art. That's probably my silly uh, dumb fun story. <laughs> That's how you know you made it. It's the infamous moments that that you love and over and over again because they're the ones it's the divergent 
things that you weren't expecting to happen. Those are the ones you like to remember the most. Oh god, yeah. How can I talk about Ponyfest without mentioning Fuff? <laughs> <laughs> I saw, I, yeah, I don't understand that, so. That one I can explain, so. Okay. Very easily. Fuff goes all the way back to our very first convention, which had a bad fanfiction reading panel. And fun it was misspelled as Fuff. And for whatever reason, everyone seized on that. And it became, um, like, just spammed all over the place. If you go in the Ponyfest server now, we have multiple Fuff, um... Oh, wow, why am I blanking at Emojis. Emojis, thank you, that you can use. Because it, it's such a strong part of our identity at the moment. But, like, it totally emerged at Ponyfest 1.0 spontaneously. Like, we as staff had nothing to do with it. We just went, all right, let's run with it. Right. And that's kind of what I would say is advice in general, is that if you're going to disregard all of the don't do this you know, it's exhausting, it's a ton of work, it's, you're going to lose money as part of it, like, you do it because you love the scene, and as long as you kind of keep that in mind, it's like, this is a product of love, and everyone involved in it really is engaging with it out of love, and you just let things develop along those principles, you'll probably go in the generally right direction. Right, right. I'm, I mean, that's, like, how... TrotCon like started to take off too is because they just made like they just made memes and it just kind of blew up from what I gathered from the outside looking in. Anyways, come to TrotCon. Yeah. So um okay, so where can people find you and um PonyFest if they they're interested in that and um anything else you want to plug, feel free. Sure. So you can find me on social media pretty much everywhere as Dexanth. That's D A excuse me, D E X A N T H. And for PonyFest Online, um, if you just Google PonyFest Online, that is also our Twitter identity. Our website is over at PonyFest.horse. And yeah, mm -hmm. Twitter is probably the easiest place to find me personally. That's, that's, that's valid. Um, you know, even though Twitter is just like a mess this whole year, but it's, it's fine. I guess we're used to it now. <laughs> I'm still at the point where my DMs are able to remain open for everybody. <laughs> for now. Dun, dun, dun. But yeah, um, I really appreciate your time, um, Dax, and I appreciate that, like, of all the con people, you and Scott and, and um, that kind of group have always been, like, super nice and, you know, sincere about, you know, not only, like, your relationship with me, but your relationship with your guests and, and like, the attendees in general. And, like, good, good good people good vibes so you know especially like the ups and downs of pony cons for me these last couple of years i i really appreciate like you being in my corner and being a good person so i, I try and keep myself in basically everyone's corner wherever possible you know for me to for me to be like nah i don't want to deal with you usually consists of you need to be an open unrepentant jerk yeah and uh <laughs> that's a good political move as long as you're willing to learn, I'm usually willing to work with somebody because we all make mistakes, we all need to grow as people, and if you don't give each other the opportunity to do that, how do people learn? Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it. You know, as long as people are open to that, I think, you know, which, again, like, it's a part of growing up and all that stuff. But yeah. 
Look, look, my my personal advice, do not pick Celestia as the pony to model yourself over. It turns out bad <laughs> because you turn into mom for everybody. <laughs> mom horse, come help uh, me. I'm confused. <laughs> All right. Um. I, I jest about it, but it, it's only half joking. Oh, Lord. Um, anyway, so as far as us, if you're new or you're you're seeing us through um, ponies and you're like, I forgot KP still existed. I'm just like, well, welcome um, to to the Halloween time. Unless you're watching this like a year later, it's fine. So uh, we're on all the social media, too, for the podcast. It's at the KP podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And then, you know, make sure you subs- like we're most most people listen to the podcast on YouTube, honestly, like, but, you know, we're on SoundCloud and like Spotify and shit. If that's like where you want to go to listen to people, I don't know. It's, you know, pretend you have friends and, you know, put speakers up and it's fine. No, I've been seeing posts where people are like, oh, yeah, like I don't like I'm not seeing people. So I'm just going to listen to the podcast to pretend there's people in the room. So I feel less alone because 2020 and just like that's so sad um <laughs> but yeah so um you know wherever you want to listen to us it's fine um you know again youtube and maybe we'll live stream stuff whenever we can figure this stuff out maybe i don't know um and then obviously watch the main channel that's where we're putting all our energy and you know tell your friends about it all two of you who didn't come from there anyway um but yeah thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the kp and friend show i guess so <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks everybody and bye 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 everyone <laughs> thank you so much for listening to animation communication on youtube spotify or your favorite podcast provider we are really hoping this show makes a difference in how people view animation and media as well as giving and providing advice for people all over the world who like or want to join the animation or media industry. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe and rate those five stars, as well as tell your friends. Don't forget to subscribe to our main YouTube channel, I Love Kim Possible A Lot, and turn those notifications on. My name is Scribbler, and you have been listening to Animation Communication. <laughs>